Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Well, if you recognize that music, then you'll have a different relationship to the conversation we're going to have here at the top of The Nose today. The Nose, raise your hand if you've never listened to The Nose before. I can't actually see you do it, but um, The Nose is something for the for many years we've been doing at the end of the week with the feeling that people need to get ready for the weekend. People maybe need to hear a slightly more lighthearted conversation. Uh, and so today we will be talking a little bit later in The Nose perhaps not that lightheartedly, about the struggle that Ellen DeGeneres has had to shake off an incredible round of bad publicity about the toxic atmosphere uh, on the set and behind the scenes at her show and whether or not she is anything like the nice and intensely kind person that she purports to be and a whole bunch of other stuff uh, and whether or not all that criticism uh, would have ever been directed at a man doing the same kind of job. Uh, all of that uh, will be part of it. And then time permitting, we're going to have a conversation about what's going on on the sets of either long-running television programs or movies that are trying to stay in production right now. They now have what is frequently called the CCO, a COVID compliance officer. However, getting people to do what they're supposed to do in an environment like that apparently is somewhat difficult. Uh, but we're going to begin with uh, the show whose theme song we just played. That's uh, Schitt's Creek. Uh, and I've never been able to say that word with such impunity in 28 years as a broadcaster, but it is the name of the program, and it is spelled differently. Uh, so um, uh, it had just won all kinds of Emmys and set records for Emmys, and I think it's the first time that four actors from the same show have won uh, in all the four comedy ca categories on the Emmys. I don't know if that's important, but it's just it's, it's there. Uh, here to talk about it, uh, I sort of had to get up to speed on this show, but we know from people making recommendations in the past on this show that we already had some panelists who were well steeped, who were more than up to their knees in Schitt's Creek. Uh, Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, and dancer, and founder, director, and choreography choreographer of Kinetic Dance. She is joining us via the miracle of Skype. Uh, Mercy Quay is founder and principal consultant for the Narrative Project and a columnist, as am I, with Hearst Connecticut Media Group. So, um, you know, maybe the best thing to do to get things going is to sort of introduce you a little bit to at least the sound and feel of this show. Uh, and so here is a clip from season one, episode one. There are now six seasons, uh, I believe, although I'm not fully caught up at all. Uh, and you'll just sort of get a sense of what has happened to the formerly affluent and, in fact, celebrity, celebrity adjacent Rose family. Eli really did a number, Johnny. He took everything. They're still looking for him. They think he's in the Caymans. He was our business manager. He's supposed to pay taxes. There is a very small amount set aside for you and one asset the government has allowed you to retain. The kids. The children are dependents, Moira. You bought a small town in 1991, Johnny. Yes, I bought that as a joke for my son. 
Wait, you actually purchased that town? Yes, I purchased the town. How else could I get the deed? You could have photoshopped the and deed. And saved the money. Like, why would the I, money. Why would I photoshop a deed? The joke was owning the okay, town. Stop. That was the joke. Oh, my God. Well, that was the joke. To Johnny's credit, this town might just be your saving grace. At least for a while. What do you mean? You can live there for next to nothing until you get back on your feet. I'm sure there's a penthouse we can move into. Please, there are other options. Well, homelessness is still on the table. So, yes, indeed. This is somewhat based on the fact that uh, back in the, I think maybe the 90s, late 80s, I, I don't remember when it was, Kim Bassinger actually did buy a little town in Georgia. Uh, and this is some of the inspiration here. So this is a series which has grown, grown on its audience, and I think by all accounts grown uh, season to season in in appeal and comedy and maybe a mix of pathos and comedy. So Mercy, if you were trying, going to try to explain what's good about this series to a person who's never seen it, how would you kind of try to get them interested? <laughs> um, well, I would say that this is a... Um social commentary on what it's like being independently wealthy and, and then having it all ripped from underneath you in a way that is a stark reminder that you never had to do anything on your own. But as a person of color who that does not resonate with, the comedy is enough to have you tied to the screen for the rest of your viewing, your show hole, your, your pandemic show hole. <laughs> so Carolyn, yeah, there's, um, th this is sort of, and I guess I think one of the, we should say that Eugene Levy and his family are very responsible for the show. His son uh, is a co-star writer and producer and director uh, of some episodes. His daughter also plays a not insignificant role and his brother, Fred, I think is co-producer. So, and, but somebody in all that mix said at some point, that they were thinking a little bit, at least initially, about the Kardashians. You know, what what if the Kardashians suddenly didn't have any money? Um, they being people who, you know, have become exactly that kind of celebrity adjacent. They know rich and famous people because they're rich, and so they have become famous. And I think Mercy's point is an interesting one. It is about people who haven't really acquired any other skills in a situation where they need other skills. Yeah, so I've been a huge fan of this show since day one. And in fact, I remember being on the nose and trying to endorse it. And like, we couldn't even figure out how I could say what this show was <laughs> on the air, how I could say the title. I was like, it rhymes with Pitts Creek. And it was on, you know, this obscure network. It originally came here in the U.S. on Pop Network on cable. So, you know, I... I Got I got wind of it, and I'm a huge Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara fan, and I was so enchanted by the fact that this was sort of the brainchild of Eugene Levy and his son, um, who turns out to be, you know, just as radically gifted as his father. And the daughter, she's amazing, too. Um, the, whole, the whole show for me, kind of like what Mercy said, the charm and the comedy, and it's at its best when you have these characters struggling to kind of learn how to adult, even though they're all, they've all, some of them have been adults for like, you know, 50 something years. But it also, uh, you know, a lot of shows like this, where you have these characters that are so unlikable, because the Rose family is not necessarily likable, especially 
early on, but they become so endearing to you as they, as they grow. And that was what made the show so special is that you really did see these characters grow and evolve into people that you did like more and you did want to find love and success. Um, And I think that that's, to me, beyond the comedy aspect, the amazing writing and the amazing acting and the way that these characters and these actors took these characters on this journey was just so well done. Um, Beyond just all the amazing, silly comedy moments, uh, some of which that sometimes I just sit around thinking about a moment from this show. Like early on, Catherine O'Hara's character, Moira Rose, doing the commercial at the winery. It's in the first season. And to me, that was that is still like one of the most uh, hilarious scenes, just watching her. It's very much like Lucille Ball trying to do the Vitamita Vegemin commercial. Yeah, um, I, I want to say about Catherine O'Hara in this. So I've been a Catherine O'Hara fan since SCTV, where she and Eugene Levy first met decades and decades and decades ago. And, and watching her have a career the entire time, I, for the most part, thought I wish she had a role that let her do the stuff that I know that she can do from just watching her on SCTV, where she played, you know, sort of seven or eight regularly repeating characters and then would do these devastating impersonations of people like Elizabeth Taylor and stuff like that. And I, I used to see her pop up in, you know, Beetlejuice or you know, Home Alone or something and think, well, well, no, I, I want to see Catherine O'Hara do what she can do. And this is the first time I've seen it. She plays, we should say, a faded, not fading, but a faded uh, soap opera star who had this kind of some kind of bitch goddess uh, role uh, on uh, soap opera. Uh, I, you guys know more about it than I do because I'm nowhere near as far along as you are. Uh, and 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 sort of a person who fancies herself uh, as uh, an all around entertainer, a chanteuse, as she calls herself at one point. She also has this kind of strangely overdeveloped vocabulary, uh, this very oddly affected way of speaking, but basically considers herself to be the most talented and high-functioning person in every situation she's in, and that's never the case. And Mercy, I really do feel like, if I would agree that this cast is very, very strong, top to bottom, full of Canadian obscurities, (laughs) uh, and not very many well-known names names outside of Chris Elliott and one or two other people, but there's a way in which O'Hara, you know, when she gets a scene, uh, like in that first season where she's trying to coach a couple of kids in a classroom through an anti-drug skit, um, you know, she just can just tear up the scenery in a way that, uh, you know, I find very gratifying. Uh, yeah, I think I think it is the instant gratification of you, you fail videos on YouTube, <laughs> right? I mean, you you become, I mean, if a, if a failed video on YouTube, if you fell in love with the character and then that character had an entire season of failing, Right. And we got to watch them improve throughout the season. Um, and you started off from a point of view of, yeah, I wouldn't have taken that skateboard down that stairs. That seemed like a really bad idea. You're an idiot. But then by episode five, you're like, oh, kid, you got it. You got it. You're almost there. I think, you know, uh, the, the scene that you're talking about um, uh, where Moira is coaching the acting classes, you know, she just has this inflated um idea of herself and and it's so divorced from reality and all of them in in a lot of ways are divorced from reality but you want to see them succeed as you progress through the season in a way that you are i mean you know i as a viewer i was just not into watching them succeed in episode one (laughs) um i think that david 
David Rose's is, you know, who I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I, I want to have a, you know, strictly black and white and monochrome uh, wardrobe. And I want to be able to swipe a credit card without any worries of the world, knowing that I could just write it off. Right. I, I think that every, no matter David who you. you are, you might find some, you know, something of value, um, you know, something that you, that resonates with you with each of the characters in the show. It's just really sweet to watch them uh, progress. Right. And I think this is, by the way, a very Canadian show. Uh, Schitt's Creek uh, is for, for real shot in some small town in Ontario. Where, by the way, the Lions Club for one year changed its name. I think it's called Good Body Canada or someplace like that. Anyway, they they changed it, their names to the Schitt's Creek's Lions Club. And I think the local baseball team did, did the same thing. But there is sort of a Canadian sweetness that runs through this, uh, Carolyn, and I think saves it from being the kind of you know, acid, look down your nose, uh, take. I mean, this this show from its premise could easily have been sneering about rural bumpkins and sneering about sort of a American Euro trash. You know, mm-hmm. it, it it could have taken its two main populations and just crapped all over them. Uh, and, and it doesn't in all the ways that both of you have just said, that there's a real affection uh, for these people and a real desire to see them within the narrow confines of their emotional repertoires, um, you know, have some happiness, have some, have some wins. You, you don't necessarily want them to fall down the stairs every time. Oh no. yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and you know, if nothing else, it also just feels as though you, you get this, this, um, uh, affinity for just the patterns of speech that each of the actors have created for the characters, right? Um, you, David, oh my God, I love that for you, right? I've, I have adopted that into my lexicon <laughs> and I don't regret it. I'm going to say that right now. Yeah, Carolyn, there's a way I think in which, you know, and, and you as a comedy actor, I think would be sensitized to this is they everybody kind of dials down their thing a little bit. I mean, O'Hara is kind of over the top a lot of the time in a way that we want her to be. But, you know, they, they, they take these characters and they make them so much more than sketch characters so that, yeah, you really do start to believe in, in some kind of complexity. And, and it's and, and I think some of that, correct me if you think I'm wrong, involves like even Chris Elliott, you know, who tends to play out to the extremes and has a very extreme kind of character, at least in the episodes that I've seen so far. <laughs> There's a way in which he even he's kind of holding back a little bit on, you know, how weird and crazy and depressed he could go. Yeah, I think that that, like I said earlier, that they allowed these to not just be uh, sketch characters. You know, they they allowed them to grow into these real these these real characters, uh, and and they like pushed the envelope with that. Uh, you know, Catherine O'Hara is so. She is so over the top in this. And the way they created this character, her the fashion, the styling of her, the vocabulary, her affected accent that, you know, and they several times reference, like people don't understand what this accent is that she's doing this sort of <laughs> old Hollywood kind of voice. And uh, it, it just, it, it really always went just far enough that it's like absurd 
but not so far that it's just like unbelievable and like cringeworthy or just it making you stop to stop caring about them. Um, and oh, that's I think so that it's absolutely cringeworthy. I think that there are moments that are absolutely cringeworthy. I think, well, you know, watching more, like, they're, they're acting, their comedy isn't like, cringeworthy. Oh, right. Exactly. No, like, exactly. That goes on too long. Um, this was, yes, what they're doing is absolutely, you know, yeah, you're embarrassed for the character, but you're, you're totally on board with the scene that is happening. You're fully bought absolutely. into. And, um, they, they, they just, uh, get this there. The pacing is so correct with that, that it keeps it, uh, it keeps it from being that kind of comedy that you, you, you lose interest in them or they never grow. They're sort of the same. Like it's always sunny in Philadelphia. That was a mm -hmm. show that early on, uh, it was just so fun to watch these just total like pieces of garbage humans. Uh, but they never moved past that. They were trapped in this world, sort of like Seinfeld, too. Like the Seinfeld characters, you know, uh, they didn't have these redeeming qualities of growth uh, that somehow Schitt's Creek managed to make these really horrible people like your hero and somebody that yeah. you actually, in a lot of ways, people could relate to these characters. Right. Uh, so I, I think when... I'm assuming everybody knows, um, everybody knows, or most people know Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. Just before we run out of time, I want to call a little bit of attention to the, the two younger members of the family. We talked about Daniel Levy uh, as David Rose. Uh, Annie Murphy plays uh, Alexis Rose, whom uh, Mercy apparently can do a pretty good impersonation of. Uh, here we are. We're going to meet them also. This is also season one, episode one. They've been thrust into this situation where they are sharing adjoining rooms at a motel with their parents, with whom they have actually actually a not particularly enmeshed relationship, but here's the two of them navigating their space together. I need that bed. Why? Because I need it. Why? Because if someone were to break in here in the middle of the night wanting to murder us, they would attack this bed first. So I need this bed. So you're saying that you want me to get murdered first in front of you? And then what would you do? Would you just run away and leave me to bleed out on the floor? Uh, sort of. That was the plan. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can have the bed when I leave. Well, where are you going? Stavros is flying in to get me. I told you that. What do you mean Stavros is coming? What do you mean? When? When is he doing that? Like, whenever stupid Mary-Kate stops hogging his plane. Well, where are we going? Okay, at present, he's just coming for me. Huh? But then I figured that we would just come back and grab you guys at some point. What kind of sociopath abandons her family in some vomit-soaked dump to gallivant around the world with her dumb shipping air loser boyfriend she's known for three months. Um, David, it will be four months next month. Oh my God. And he just told me that he could potentially see himself considering saying I love you at some point sometime soon, so. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I'm telling mom. Oh, so, um, I, <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Who was just about to talk there? Well, I was just thinking in listening to this how, and I don't know why this hadn't occurred to me, this show was like really about a family being quarantined together before any yeah. anybody actually had to face that reality. Yep. Um, that, you know, that concept of everyone having their own lives and uh, then all of a sudden that just being 
cut away and you're forced into these very small and, uh, you know, a whole different way of, of living. And, and I think it would be, it's interesting to look at the show that way in this like kind of 2020 vision. Absolutely. Um, and I would also say that the show is really responsible in ways. I think, uh, the gender nonconformity that we see in David's and David's characters, um, story arc with, I mean, mm -hmm. um, Ian Stevie exploring uh, polyamory, but then also, um, you know, their sexual identities. I mean, I think it's really responsible in a lot of ways in that regard. Yeah, David at one point explains that he's pansexual, and I think it's her father who wants to know if that if that has something to do with cooking. Um, <laughs> but um, but yes, I mean you know as we move along, and I haven't come to this part yet. I'm I'm kind of hitting off the back tees here compared to the two of you, but uh, I I know just from all the hype that there's a a serenade, uh, I guess um, a, a song a musical performance. Uh, that is kind of, by most accounts, off the charts, romantic. Catherine O'Hara said she couldn't get through any takes of it on the set without uh, crying. Uh, and and uh, Mercy, to your point, I mean, there's a way in which uh, we're getting a tweet about this right now, that a same-sex relationship within a not particularly high-functioning family suddenly, uh, you know, can flower and, and be supported in, in, a, in a nice way by that family. Oh, absolutely. Um, we don't typically see that. We see um, same-sex relationships depicted on television as though it is the source of trauma for a person. Um, and so there, there was a really responsible approach in how they depicted this. The moment um, David starts to get some amount of, of um, stability in his life is when he enters a same-sex relationship and is supporting his partner in his, his journey uh, as well. If we haven't said it already, it's the five. The first five seasons are now airing on Netflix. Uh, you'll get this by the time you get through them all. The sixth season, the one that just won all these awards, uh, will be ready. You know, one thing they appear not to have done, but once again, I'm way behind you guys. But Carolyn, at a certain point, this series started to have quite a cachet, and people in the business were kind of talking about it and tweeting about it. I mean, big celebrities were talking about what what fans they had become uh, of it. And uh, at the Emmys, uh, each of the nominees was just briefly presented with a little zoom thing by uh, by somebody uh, Shaquille O'Neal for example uh, nominated or or placed in nomination uh, curb your enthusiasm but uh, Elton John uh, was the person who nominated Schitt's Creek and talked very much about what a fan he'd become and and but Carolyn one thing they haven't done as far as I can tell is load this thing up with blockbuster guest cameos, which I'm sure they could very easily do at this point. But like Victor Garber, I think, you know, is you know, one of the few people who sort of had some kind of walk on role. And I mean, I don't think, think he's, you know, kind of Elton John sized star, but there's a way in which they've kept this, I think, at, at a scale that maybe works for them. Yeah, I just think that they knew they didn't need that. Um, they didn't need anything that kind of broke us out from uh from this amazing like world they've created with these with these actors uh I think that they were this was like their game this was their playing field and and they uh I I can't imagine like having I can't imagine like if you even even if you took a brilliant comic and put them on this show they would feel so out of place to me just because it, it would be like this like invasion of this 
uh, of this amazing uh, like comedy bubble that they kind that they created uh, on that set. It feels like so. I'm thinking that's probably why that never that never happened. Um, and I again, it has that I it that sweetness to it. At the end of the day, this show felt like a, like a family. Something felt smaller and more intimate about the way this show was done. All right, we've been talking about Schitt's Creek. Um, it's basically, if you've watched this other series, it, it's, it's if Ozark were a really funny series. Uh, it's they're both basically the same premise. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <You know? true. laughs> Rich people lose their money and have to move to some small podunk kind of place that they think they're not going to like, and then they discover all kinds of things about themselves. All right, so if you have seen uh, Schitt's Creek, be prepared to get verklempt. The rest of you, we're heading into a break, and that's why the person in the car next to you is crying right now I hang on every word you say tear us apart baby I'd rather be dead in your heart I see the start of every night and every day in your eyes I get lost I get washed away just as long as I'm here in your arms I can be in no better place Simply the best, better than all the rest, better than anyone, anyone I've ever met. Oh, you're the best. All right, we are back. Uh, this is The Nose. Our panelists today are Carolyn Payne and Mercy Quay. So um, Ellen DeGeneres has built a career out of a lot of things. She has a razor-sharp comic timing, in my humble opinion, uh, and an ability to think on her feet and to be funny on her feet. I first started to notice her, uh, actually, when she would help out at various awards shows. She was kind of a roving reporter at the Emmys one year, I think. Uh, she's also one of the better people ever to host the Oscars. Those kinds of things bring out the best in her. She's, she's sharp. She's funny. And the other thing that I think everybody has always agreed about Ellen DeGeneres is there's something very likable about her. Uh, there's something I think the girl next door term sometimes gets thrown around in that context. So starting sometime in 2019 that began to wash away a little bit amid reports that in fact uh, her show wasn't a very happy place to work. Uh, the employees felt mistreated, especially by the executive producers. It's the kind of place where you could uh, go to a funeral on compassionate leave and come back and your job might be gone. Uh, it, and that DeGeneres herself was oddly cold uh, and aloof to people refusing to say hi to people uh, in the hallways. Uh, it doesn't strike me as a cardinal sin. But uh, anyway, all of this got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So much so that uh, as her season came back this year, uh, she felt a need to at least say something about it. So here she is on the season 18 premiere of the Ellen DeGeneres show. Let me give you some advice out there. If anybody's thinking of changing their title or giving yourself a nickname, do not go with the be kind lady. <laughs> Don't do it. The truth is, I am that person that you see on TV. I am also a lot of other things. I, sometimes I get sad, I get mad, I, I get anxious, I get frustrated, I get impatient. 
And I am working on all of that. I am a work in progress. And I'm especially working on the impatience thing because, and it's not going well, because it's not happening fast enough. I will tell you that. <laughs> Listen, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm a talk show host, and you know that, but I, maybe some of you know that, you know, I was an actress. I've played a straight woman in movies, so I'm a pretty good actress. <laughs> but I don't think that I'm that good that I could come out here every day for 17 years and fool you. This is me. And my intention is to always be the best person I can be. And if I've ever let someone down, if I've ever hurt their feelings, I am so sorry for that. All right. So much to say here. Um, but Mercy, get us started. You can start anywhere you want. But I mean, maybe uh, one thing uh, to say is, has any of this been fair? I mean, kind of holding Ellen DeGeneres to this particular standard. I mean, here in a time when we are kind of rethinking power relations, you could say, well, okay, so they're rethinking that power relation. I don't know. How, does the, how did the whole mess strike you? Yeah, I think that for me, it it wasn't fair, right? I think to hold someone to a standard of you must be this one thing at all times is a, is a standard that is sure to fail um, and set you know, the person held to that standard up for scandal later on, for sure. Um, how she handles this scandal, right? This this crisis coming out of her. And also, by the way, I, I want to say that as far as crises go, as a public relations person, I want to say that if I get a crisis that says that someone's not as kind as as uh, they purport to be, it's an easy scandal to fix. And, I, and I'm sure, you know, she spent the entirety of the summer trying to figure out how to address this and I know that those attacks, those attacks for her felt really personal and those attacks for her felt could have brought the entire weight of a, a true crisis as any other. Um, but from a public relations perspective, I think they handled this brilliantly. You know, you start the, the next season addressing it head on. And for me, this is also the answer to what cancel culture can look like. Um, I think that when we you know, we talked, we've talked a great deal about the individuals, um, you know, accused from me too, or other sort of things over the years and how, how can they come back? Should they come back? Can we allow them back? Um, I think that one, this wasn't a huge thing to come back to, but two, um, rather back from, but two, I think she does this beautifully. She apologizes and she says, look, I'm human and I'm growing and I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely not lying to you. That's the thing that I can tell you. Um, and there was there was something transparent here. And even in her monologue, there's a piece where um, she she tries to pull out the 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 joke, the punchline on patients taking too long, and she stumbles <laughs> there. And you, we don't actually see Ellen stumble a great deal in her monologues, right? She sort of lets out a bit of the punchline before she gets to the punchline, and that was that was transparent. That was vulnerable. You sort of saw her. Um, uh, be human for a moment, and I th I thought it was handled beautifully. Um, I'd like to see, you know, what the Twitters thought of it. Though we we know that they have the final say. You know, there's so much. First of all, I just before I, I go to you, Carolyn, I want to just quickly tell a story. For for this, for 16 years, I hosted a very different kind of show on on a very different kind of radio station, and there was a, a day where 
uh, a new a young new producer came in to work on one of the other shows, and two of the young producers who worked with me, uh, Bobby Sherwood and uh, and Cat Pastor's friend Mikey C, brought him in to meet me. His name was James, and so brought him in to meet me. And so he stuck his hand out, and I shook his hand, and I said, "You will find me very aloof." At which point. The other two guys started laughing their heads off because that was completely true. Uh, and, and so I have a little bit of sympathy for Ellen DeGeneres. Like, you know, although all of my weirdness was sort of very much part of my on-air persona in, in that job. And I also don't want to compare myself to a megastar like DeGeneres. But, you know, Carolyn, there is... There are some serious problems here that seem more to do with how executive producers and other people at this show, which does bear Ellen DeGeneres' name, acted and maybe in a way that they didn't tell her about. But the part where she kind of gets called on the carpet, I, I don't know, are people so naive that they actually think these on-screen personae are, are, are in fact pers personalities that hold up backstage? Oh, yeah, for sure. People believe a lot of things. <laughs> so I have no trouble believing that people were just so gooped by this because they do just accept at face value. Like, I think there are a lot of people who thought that, you know, who you saw of Ellen DeGeneres in that one hour of her talk show. And a lot of these people who I'm guessing a lot of fans of her talk show weren't necessarily fans of her comedy or her shows in the past. Like, I think that all of that became a separate to who she was as this, you know, very likable, affable talk show host that is, uh, and when you're a talk show host like this kind of, you know, her job is to sort of be this like vessel of that, like gives the everyday person sitting at home on their couch access to these celebrities like they're sort of the your like stand-in for talking to this celebrity um so i think that people just kind of got and and ellen has this great i'm a big ellen fan and and i am a fan of her comedy of, of her as a comedian i agree colin that i think she has you know just razor sharp wit, incredible delivery if you haven't watched her like stand up and and her stand-up specials, they are really spectacular. Um, but I think what happened here is just somebody who is known for being so likable, so relatable, somebody that you kind of thought, like, I want to be friends with her. These the you know, that that was the air that she really had on this show. And so I think that people feel when they started hearing all of this behind the scenes stuff and, and, you know, celebrities coming forward. Although my favorite is like Mariah Carey is one of the people who came forward calling Ellen mean because apparently there was an incident where like Ellen tried to make her drink champagne to see whether or not she was pregnant when she was a guest on her show. Like this is, and that's what Mariah Carey cited as this, as Ellen being mean because she like forced her into, uh, you know, revealing whether or not she was pregnant. So, and, and I don't think that that's mean. I think that that is all part of the shtick. And that's part of who who Ellen is. I think that comedy is that where you're like kind of poking that bear and pushing that, pushing the buttons of the person next to you to get that reaction. And Ellen's great at that. So, uh, and all the stuff happening behind the scenes, like she does address that, you know, she doesn't get to control everything the way she wants to. And she does, you know, I'm, that's a high running a show as you know, Colin, and as, as, as I know, is a big 
that's a lot of responsibility and there are so many moving parts and there are so many people working on it. And I'm not trying to make excuses for what has happened there, but I am saying that there are a lot more pieces to the puzzle than uh, people may understand. Um, and I think that her apology was really well done. And uh, I, I think that she's the kind of person who will affect change there to make sure that this is not what happens going forward. You know, uh, yeah, another part of all this is, you know, the world of comedy is untamable. You know, or it's, it's it's more difficult to tame than a typical office environment. Uh, Mercy and we, one of the stories that I one of the original BuzzFeed stories on this talked about how one young staffer who was very upset about jokes involving, for example, somebody's spirit animal, and she felt that that was just you know a comic appropriation, I guess, of a Native American. I don't know. I don't know what she thought, but she was bothered by it and thought there should be more diversity training. Uh, and you know, I mean, you can only clean up the world so much and still be funny. You know, and and yeah, like Ellen DeGeneres does have this super nice girl next door. We're all having a great afternoon today thing. But to be a comedian, you also you kind of do have to make fun of people or maybe put Mariah Carey on the spot or or something like that. You can't always be nice. Yeah, go ahead. Take it. Yeah. Well, I was just was going to say that that's what Ellen does so well, I think, on the few times I have, you know, watched the show or seen a clip. She is that like likable person that you'd want to hang out with, but also knows how to get a dig in. In a, in a really in a really good way. And I, that I, I think that that's what makes good TV. Like, I don't need to see somebody sitting there just being nice and <laughs> nice yeah. is not, you know, I, I and I never think of I never think of anything she's done, like the Mariah Carey example or talking about a spirit animal. I mean, everyone we just live in a very hypersensitive world more so now than ever and i think the timing of this was another thing that was really unfortunate for ellen because it all came at a time where everyone is just so overly sensitive and so emotional and uh i think it helps really fuel that fire yeah mercy i'd love to hear your thoughts about this we, we do want to fix the world and there's pretty some pretty obvious broken places in the world but maybe we have to be careful about which places are truly broken and which places need a little bit of room to to creak. Yeah, I think that that I, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean on your sentiment a little bit. I think I don't know if I necessarily agree with the spirit animal piece, but I feel as though there are places in the world, to your point, that we should put all of our concerns. Ellen being mean is not one of them, right? And, I, and, I, and I'm sort of going back to what I said earlier about this not being a real crisis. I think that w when you hold one person to a, uh, to a single standard and they break it, well, you shouldn't have held them to that impossible standard to keep 24 seven, that's one thing. The other thing is, if we're going to, if we're going to compare Ellen to, um, to comedians of the day or comedians past, right? Chris Rock and George Carlin, right? I mean, just putting them on the same, putting them in the same category as as Ellen, as far as you know, what raunchy comedy can be, is I, I I just I don't think that we're going to have an argument ever that says Ellen is Ellen stacks up or measures up in a way that says you know she it, she's really cutthroat. She's a she's a cutting comedian. I think that she's been able to get a couple digs in, in a way that still feels really sweet. If what we had was a world of sweet comedy in the way that Ellen did it, one, I think that there might be, you know, we might be starved for a bit more raunchiness in our lives. But two, I think that it would, we would be okay. I think as a people, we would be okay if all of our comedians were 
Ellen DeGeneres or, um, you know, John Mulaney, for instance. It's the same sort of category of comedy for me. Or Jimmy. I mean, Jimmy Kimmel, and from I have some inside dope on this. Jimmy Kimmel apparently is a genuinely nice person, you know, pretty much all the time. And, and he manages to pull that off. But, you know, he's also lucky. He's got Donald Trump, so he can be mean to Donald Trump, you know, um, uh, pretty much 24-7 and nobody will complain. Uh, all right. So we want to quickly shift gears here. Uh, we don't have a lot of time to talk about this, which is good because I'm not even sure I know how to talk about it. But, but Carolyn, I know that you've been back uh, booking some acting work and your cat has also booked an acting job. And we now know cats can and get COVID too, so there's, there's some worries. But um, but yeah, there's a new job in show business, uh, and it's often called COVID compliance officer (CCO). Sometimes these people are nurses. Sometimes these people are non-nurses who's had a, who've had a little bit of certification training, and their job is to try to make the set. Uh, the shooting set for a TV series or a movie as safe as possible, as compliant with social distancing guidelines and mask wearing and stuff like that whenever possible. And and you just <laughs> we read this, these first person accounts of these people who have these kinds of jobs who expressed a certain amount of frustration. Uh, it is a little bit like herding cats, even if your cat is not on the set. Yeah. Uh, so I just give, give me as somebody who's, you know, maybe they're on the front lines a little bit. What's your what was your reaction to all that? Well, I mean, I I, I think being working on the crew of a show in any sort of position where you have to wrangle talent has got to be a pretty miserable and thankless job. And this is coming from somebody who is the talent. Um, I, I do try to be so, you know, you always, especially in these times, you are trying to just be so nice and like work together with everyone. Um, going back to filming uh, was a really hard choice for me. I was so nervous. The first job I went, um, I when I went to film on set, I like couldn't sleep the night before. I felt such anxiety being there, even though I felt safe because they had, you know, all these COVID precautions. They have a compliance safety officer, all of these things. I mean, you're wearing a mask when you're not filming. You are not in a room with other actors when you're not filming. Um, it's actually a very isolating, weird experience. You know, everyone's been tested. Um, I, I have to say that, like, the the union has been doing an amazing job to make this safe and possible, albeit a little bit weird and sometimes frustrating and um, what can feel a little less productive, but it's a bizarre, I mean, yeah, like, and actors like you forget because you're there to act in the moment and, you know, in between takes, you, you have to put your mask back on, you know, and, and you can't, there, you can't touch anyone or you can't share props. There is, there are so many more things that you have to worry about. So it's kind of funny on a set because like you have people whose job is, you know, they're a continuity uh, person. So they're there to like, make sure that you're using the prop the same way or that you're, you know, nothing has changed in between takes, but now it's so complicated because you have this like safety officer making sure that you're putting on your mask which then can like move around your clothes or your hair or, like you, you know in getting your mask back you move from your spot so there you have all these people kind of trying to wrangle you from six feet away right so mercy <laughs> I, I we're gonna run out of time here pretty quickly but you know when i'm reading about all this stuff or listening to carolyn i'm thinking this is probably something that 
we shouldn't be doing, that nobody should be doing. It's not really safe. But I, I can't, Mercy, I feel like we've hit the point in the timeline where in a lot of instances, whether it's the NFL or getting succession a, you know, shot for its new season on, on HBO or you know having more people sit in a really great restaurant, people are just thinking, look, we just want this enough. So that we're going to do some things yeah. that maybe aren't all that safe. I think the quarantine runways is, is almost out. I think that Hollywood is giving us what we want and they're trying to protect its, uh, you know, its assets, its talent the best way it can in giving us what we want. I mean, we talked about this in a couple of shows a few months ago. We're running out of content. And in order to ensure that we don't, we, we don't, I don't know, rage against the machine um, or decide to leave the house, Hollywood's going to feed the beast. And if a compliance safety officer, which is a real title in other places, um, but some of the titles that they've cooked up for, for this role don't sound like real titles. They sound like, you know, just uh, titles that were, you know, pulled out of someone's Shit's Creek. And I feel really strongly about, so, you know, my husband used to do um, uh, uh, environmental health and safety. I think that there's a compliance portion of COVID that every workplace should be implementing, right? There should be someone who is responsible. It just so happens that for the rest of us, it's HR usually. Right. We're going to have to stop there just because uh, we'll have almost no time for endorsements as it is. But we'll go out here with the Ellen theme song. Kitchen, kind of a bouncy mood for the afternoon. I've spent enough time alone up in my bedroom at home. Been kind of bored lately. I hate on all I see is a mundane to me. This box I've painted pains me. Wish you could watch me. All right, I have royally screwed up the clock here. I have to quickly thank uh, Kat Pastor, uh, who's producing in studio, uh, and the producer of this episode, Jonathan McPants, will be back on Monday. I know Molly Jong Fast, one of the, or Yong Fast, I guess you would say it, uh, is one of the really mordant voices in punditry these days, is joining us to talk about our current national crisis. All right, so uh, you've each got a, a minute or so, uh, Mercy Quay and uh, Carolyn Payne. Mercy, why don't you go first and endorse? Okay, great. So um, keeping on brand for me, Netflix has just released a um, full series uh, about the world's first human, you know, the, gosh, how do I explain this? The first manned voyage to Mars. um, And it stars Hilary Swank. And it is the story of, you know, the, uh, the top countries who have space and aeronautic program sending their best person out into space to work together and find their way into Mars. And just like every other story about people going to into space, something bad happens. Something bad happens every episode. Um, but it's a great piece. And if you need something to binge, I would recommend that. That and the second season of The Boys is out on Amazon. And uh, Colin, I don't know if you guys have picked, up, picked that up on the nose yet, but this is a great piece as well. It's effectively... What would the world be like if Marvel characters were real? And, you know, what happens when power goes to someone's head? And if if companies own them, too, yeah. We did talk about the first season a a little bit. uh, So, yeah, and and the second season, I think, is getting even better reviews. Uh, That's The Boys. And the the Mars series is called Away, am I crazy? Away, that's right. right. So, Carolyn, uh, what have you got to recommend this week? 
All right. Well, um, in the spirit of Schitt's Creek, Catherine O'Hara is amazing. And if you have never done so, you should go down a YouTube rabbit hole and watch her SCTV sketches. Colin talked about them earlier. Definitely worth your time. Also, um, she is at her greatest, I think, as well in um, For Your Consideration, the Christopher Guest movie. Um, I think that that was a really brilliant turn for her. And my other recommendation is Love Fraud on Showtime. It is a true crime documentary that is a really wild, wild ride that uh, you should definitely check out if if um, if you're a fan of like Dirty John and uh, you want to ensure that you're afraid of dating forevermore. <laughs> Definitely watch that show. It is, it is, it's really well done. It's done by the people who made the documentary Jesus Camp. All right. So uh, recommendations from our uh, two great panelists, Mercy Quay, uh, Carolyn Payne. I, I, I just, uh, time is limited. I'll just kind of double down on what Carolyn Payne said. Uh, go uh, seek out old SCTV stuff. And you kind of have to give it, its pace is very different. And it's uh, the premise of the whole series was that there's this kind of second-rate Canadian TV network. And half the time you're seeing what goes on behind the scenes. And the other half the time you're seeing promos or, or little pieces of the stuff that actually gets on the air and it is really really funny it's john candy rick moranis uh, martin short uh and Catherine o'hara and a whole bunch of other people that you came to love uh, as time went by in other contexts all right thanks so much to these two terrific panelists thanks for your time have a great weekend we'll be back on monday the way we tend to be all the berry woodberry hitting on new britain burning I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.